It's great to be with you this morning. For anyone new, I'm Curtis, and I'm an intern here at Calvary Baptist, as well as Mile One Mission, our church planning ministry. This Sunday will be my uh, second sermon out of the book of Galatians, the book that all the interns are preaching through. And our last time in this book, we left off with Paul giving a defense of his apostleship. Today, we'll look at a divisive issue that arose in the early church and how Paul addressed it and what that means for us and our church today. So if you've got your Bibles with you, flip open with me to Galatians 2, 11 to 14. That's Galatians 2, 11 to 14. I'll just give you a second to get there. Throughout the past two weeks, I've been really exploring this passage, reading it over and over again, reading what others say about it, you know, going through the book of Galatians as a whole. And when I first started studying it, it seemed to me to be this telling of an historical event, all about how Peter screwed up, had to be called out in front of everyone. You know, I read it like you might read a history textbook as a mere onlooker observing the past. But the more I soaked in this passage, it hit me that, that I'm like Peter, and not the rock star image of Peter, you know, who preached in Acts 2, and 3,000 people came to Christ, or who died a martyr's death, or who was gifted in a leadership ability and a pillar of the early church. But I'm talking about the Peter here, who was afraid of what others might think of him, and who was terrified of the consequences of following Jesus. And as the weeks went on, I began to notice more and more the moments where, where I can be like Peter in this passage. And I read part of this from an author, and I thought, this describes the passage perfectly, and this is basically my sermon in a sentence, if you will. When the fear of people overcomes our love for God, we end up denying the gospel. When the fear of people overcomes our love for God, we end up denying the gospel. I remember one time when I was still going to Mun, I was heading over to the gym in the Acarina, and if you've been there, you know you got to pass through the field house and then go up these set of stairs and like access the skywalk and all that. Anyway, set up right there so that you had to pass by it uh, was this booth from the Mun Catholic Society, and they were promoting their Bible study and trying to get more people to come. Anyways, they were giving out free bags of chips, but not wanting to feel gross during my workout, I said no thanks, which is probably one of the few times in my life I've ever turned down free food. But the point is, as I was walking by, they asked me, are you a Christian? And of course I was, you know, I am, but for some reason, no words came out of my mouth. You know, I just fumbled over myself for, for a few seconds, but before saying sheepishly, I, I go to church, and that's all I could muster. That's all I could manage. Just last week, Steve Daw talked about how going to church, you know, being moral doesn't make you a Christian, and, and here I was asked if I was a Christian, really, if I believed in the gospel, if I trusted in Christ alone, grace through faith, not a result of works, and, and my only profession of belonging to Christ was, I mean, I go to church. Almost wondering, like, does that count? I don't know why I said that. I don't think it mattered that it was a Catholic group. It could have been anybody. It could have been another Christian group. You know, maybe it was the people passing by. You know, maybe they might hear and think, you know, you're one of those Jesus people. But nonetheless, the point is, is that I denied the gospel. I could have said, yes, I am a Christian. 
because I believe in Christ and I trust that he alone is sufficient for me. Instead, I went the whole religious route. You know, instead of telling all that Christ had done for me, I pointed to myself. This is what I do. I go to church. I follow the rules. I tithe. I, I don't party. I don't drink. I'm a moral person. You know, and on and on it goes. And I'm sure I'm not the only one here who's been in a similar type of situation like that before, where out of fear, we end up denying the gospel. And as we'll see in our passage, that's exactly what the Apostle Peter did. And he did this primarily because where Christ, by his death and resurrection, destroyed the divide between Jews and Gentiles, making a way for all people to be saved, Peter tried to recreate that divide. Where the message of Jesus' gospel says that all are one in Christ, Peter, by his actions, was saying that his group of people were better, more worthy of the gospel, and that everyone should follow them. And this is something that David's going to really focus on next week as well. But in essence, Peter was adding something to the gospel. And that's why this is so important. So let's take a look at the passage. But when Cephas... Cephas being Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So I got two main points out of that for this passage. Point one, fear will cause us to deny the gospel. Fear will cause us to deny the gospel. That's point one. Point two, whether for good or for evil, you have influence. Whether for good or for evil, we have influence. And I'll break that down a little bit more later on. But point one first, fear will cause us to deny the gospel. This is what happened to Peter. Just take a look at verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So Peter is currently in the church in Antioch, and before these certain men came, he not only ate with the Gentiles, but as one commentator puts it, he lived like the Gentiles. He even ate unclean Jewish foods. And just to give you a bit of context, there was a debate in the early church concerning how Christians should treat the Old Testament law. You know, and fair enough, did they have to take all 613 of the Mosaic commandments, you know, like not eating pork, ceremonial washing, or circumcision? Were these things that Jews who had become Christians still needed to abide by? And did they need to enforce that upon Gentiles, non-Jewish Christians as well? All valid questions, and they were big deals, but It's in the book of Acts where God really gives Peter a firm answer. 
So if you just turn over to Acts chapter 10 with me for just a second, so we can understand the, the context of this passage a little bit better. This is where Peter goes and meets the non-Jewish Roman centurion Cornelius at his house, and he receives a vision beforehand. So if you're there now in Acts 10, just glance down to verses 9 to 18. 9 to 18. It says this. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. Here, in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. So, men sent from Cornelius meet Peter, and then he goes with them to meet Cornelius himself. And so just quickly down to verse 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I know there's a lot of verses, but they really help explain the backdrop of everything that's going on. And, and Jesus said, he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So all these Old Testament laws, they weren't ends in and of themselves, but they were meant simply to point to Christ. And now that Christ has come, you know, they've served their purpose, God has revealed himself to all people. The gospel, salvation, is not just for the Jews, but for Gentiles, for us, for everyone. And it's clear that, that Peter takes to this, because he starts to eat with the Gentiles, and he shares food with them. He no longer sees a difference between them and the Jews. And here in the church in Antioch, he probably also had communion, the Lord's Supper with him. But as these men came from Jerusalem, Peter started to slowly distance himself. You know, at first, as one commentator suggests, he might have still entered a Gentile house, but chose not to eat with them. But over time, he eventually didn't show up at all. The result being that other Jewish Christians followed suit and the church was eventually split in two. Now, you know, what if that happened here at, at Calvary Baptist? I, I doubt we would have arguments about circumcision or, or not eating pork, but let's just say that we were having a meal after church downstairs, or, or even worse, we were having the Lord's Supper up here, and we decided to say, you know, 
everyone who was born in Newfoundland. You know, you sit on this side, and the rest of you, you sit on the other side. Or maybe if you're in this income bracket, sit over here, and if you're below it, sit over here. Or if you believe in speaking in tongues, you know, or if you don't, or if you want the church to head in this direction, or, or that one, or if you're an Arminian, or you're a Calvinist, then you sit on this side of the church, and we'll have our Lord's Supper, and we'll, we'll all do that, and when we're all done, you can go and do it. What if we practiced that here? During the American Civil War in the 19th century, many churches practiced this very thing. In a particular denomination, it was customary for church elders to give their members tokens which signified their eligibility to take part in the Lord's Supper. But African slaves were not given a silver token, but one of much lesser quality, and they were not allowed to receive the Lord's Supper until all the white members of the church had been served first. Now, as appalled as we all are at that, that is effectively what happened in the church at Antioch. There was a separation, a split along a certain line, and this denied the very nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it was for all people. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there is no room to boast in ourselves or think we're better than others because Christ has saved us purely by grace through faith, not because of anything good within us. It's been said that when we refuse to eat the Lord's table with fellow Christians, the reason must be because we consider ourselves to have something that they do not. In other words, we think that we are better. And this brings me back to my first point. Fear will cause us to deny the gospel. Because Peter, right, he didn't really think this was right, by the way. He had no problem eating with Gentiles before, but all of a sudden... These quote-unquote men from James show up, and he feels intimidated. Just a quick side note, many scholars think that James himself, the leader of the Jerusalem church and the half-brother of Jesus, didn't really believe these things, but that these men came from Jerusalem of their own volition and with their own separate agenda. But what I want us all to get here is that Peter, who believed something to be true with all his heart, outwardly denied the very thing he claimed to believe in. He even received a vision from heaven where God told him the divide between Jews and Gentiles is no more. In Galatians 3.28, Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Yet even after receiving a vision from God, these men that show up to Antioch are enough to terrify Peter into denying the gospel. And we don't know what their threats might have been. You know, maybe Peter didn't want to damage his reputation with the Jewish community, or, or maybe some type of violent persecution really could have ramped up again. But whatever it was, Peter denied the gospel. He denied Christ. So the immediate question is, how do we do that? How do we deny Christ? Because Peter wanted to be accepted. He wanted to be affirmed. He wanted everybody to think he was a nice guy. You know, like most of us. He didn't want to be slandered. He wanted to be liked. But he let those desires override his love for Christ. And I can relate to that. I mean, we live in a culture basically whose highest virtues are acceptance and affirmation. 
You know, affirm me in whatever I do. And if we disagree on one thing, that's just proof that you must hate me. It wasn't that what we think. And Peter struggled with the same thing. And the reason why he sinned in this way is because instead of knowing that he was accepted by God, he sought his approval in other things. Do we seek our approval in other things? You know, students, teenagers, do you seek your approval in in school, in good grades or popularity or the approval of your parents? But what if in order to follow Christ, it means you will not be popular? And it means that your parents will not understand and will not approve. Or for others, do you seek your approval in your job or a promotion, friends, respect? What about retirement, wealth, vacations, being in control or always getting your way? What if by following Christ, all those things were put at risk? Would you still follow him? Would you still follow him? Because because as far as I can tell, reading the word of God, Jesus doesn't promise any of those things. He does promise a cross to bear. He does, in fact, promise that. And I know our culture can be so North American, Western European focused, and I'm guilty of this too. But if we take a second to just look at the world around us, and not just present day, but throughout history, you know, Christians in the Roman Empire or those who started the Protestant Reformation, or those in modern-day China or Iran, you'll notice that many of the perks I mentioned before, retirement, wealth, popularity, most Christians didn't and do not have that. And look, I'm just like all of you. I want it to be liked. I want to be liked. I want to be comfortable. No, I don't want to suffer. I want to be respected. And I fear to lose all of that. But we shouldn't have to worry about acceptance and approval of others because we are accepted already by God. Yes, fear will cause us to deny the gospel, but know today that you are accepted and loved by God and that is much greater than any affirmation the world could offer you. Second point for this passage is that whether for good or for evil, We have influence. Whether for good or for evil, we have influence. None of us lives in a silo. Our actions affect others. For parents, you know, just think what happens when you mention a certain word around a child and then they latch onto it and keep using it over and over again. Or young people, you know, if you're in high school, who knows what five and six-year-olds look up to you and hang off of every word you say. Young people, older people, whoever you are, someone, somebody looks up to you. And that influence can be used well or used poorly. Peter here is an example of influence being used bad, being used for evil. Take a look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. In other words, what we do affects others. It does. And because Peter's position of authority, his actions had an even bigger ripple effect. As J.M. Boyce puts it, the greater the position of responsibility, the more important those actions become. Peter was a leader. Where he went, many followed. 
And when he fell into sin, it says that even Barnabas was led astray along with him. Just imagine a similar type of thing here. Steve Daw told us last week that if this church ever stops preaching the gospel, then find a new church. And, and, and what if we did stop preaching the gospel? Not suddenly and completely out of nowhere, but, but slowly, gradually, just like Peter did, slowly withdrawing from the Gentiles. Right? That's how the devil works, remember. One little inch at a time. And, and we do this all the time, don't we? You know, it's not really a big deal. It's not like I'm doing that. We justify sin. You know, it's not like I'm lying. I'm just excluding part of the truth. You know, it's not like I'm cheating on my wife. I'm just checking out that woman who's jogging. Right, so one inch here, one inch there. And really, before you know it, you look up and you're 10 miles down the road that way, questioning just how you got there. But it didn't start there. It started way before that with just a small lie. One step at a time. Todd Wilson says that most people are easily affected by hypocrisy. And, and Peter here is simply a hypocrite. Right? He shuns fellow believers because they don't practice the very thing that he himself was not practicing. He has a double standard. And so the point is, whether for good or for evil, we have influence. And this goes back to the main theme of this passage. When the fear of people overcomes our love for God, we end up denying the gospel. And when we see that fear motivating others to do what is wrong, to deny Christ by their actions, especially if they are leaders, then it becomes much easier for us to do the same. Because the reality is, the gospel can be extremely offensive. It is simultaneously the most inclusive yet exclusive offer. Anyone, anyone who comes to Christ, he will in no way cast out. It's for everyone, yet salvation is only through Christ. The only way God could reconcile himself to us is by God becoming like one of us, a man, and then dying to pay the price for our sin, redeeming fallen humanity. So when we stand here and say that this is the only way to be saved, that's not always going to be easy or popular. William Booth, a Methodist and founder of the Salvation Army, once said at the turn of the 20th century, I consider that the chief dangers which confront the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. Now, I normally just forget the politics aspect of that because the world's going to do what the world's going to do. But in terms of the church, I think he's pretty well spot on. I mean, religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ. I mean, in certain circles, you can be an atheist and still be a minister. If that doesn't exemplify Christianity without Christ, I don't know what does. And so the pressure will be, as it becomes more and more uncommon to hear the true gospel, the pressure will be to forsake it just as Peter and the rest of the Jewish Christians at Antioch did. You know, one went astray, and the rest followed. You know, this is why my one mission exists, by the way, to preach the gospel where it once was, but no longer is, heard. 
you know, before we get all self-righteous and look down on others, you know, like saying, look at that church over there, you know, they wouldn't know what the gospel was if it smacked them upside the head. Because if there's anyone here who was most tempted to do that, it's probably me. There, there's a reason one of my nicknames at the church offices is Son of Thunder. Like the nickname Jesus gave James and John, which, by the way, was not a compliment. And it's easy to be full of ourselves here. It really is to look down on, like, they, they don't know, they've long forsaken Christ. and It's really easy to look down on others. But before we go there, think about how many times we've went along with others. Out of mere peer pressure, knowing that it was wrong. Or indeed, we've been the ones who've pressured others. Others can be led astray by our sin, just as they were in this passage. If you jump down to the next verse, verse 14, Paul says this. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter again, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And this is the flip side of my second point. Whether for good or for evil, you have influence. We've seen how Peter uses influence wrongly, and here we can see how Paul uses it right. As one author says, Paul did not rebuke because he liked attention or arguments. His concern was for the truth of the gospel. And the gospel was at stake here. Peter was being a massive hypocrite. People were coming and saying, faith in Christ, that's great and all, but it's not enough. You need more. That's just the beginning. To be a real Christian, you've got to keep all the Jewish laws, impress God, do all this. It would have turned the freedom that we have in Christ into just another burdensome religion. And so that's why this is so important. And this concept of, of rebuke doesn't really chide well with us. Because let's face it, it, it sucks to be rebuked. Right? To be called out on our junk. It hurts our pride. You know, it's not fun. But we can learn something from Paul here, because we too, as brothers and sisters in Christ, when we see each other sin, or ashamed of the gospel out of fear of others, we need to rebuke each other, and not in a pompous, holier-than-thou kind of way, not in a mean-spirited way, but, but in love. Throughout the month of January, many of us here have been going through the book of Proverbs together, reading one a day, and I think the chapter that had the most profound effect on me was Proverbs 25, most especially verse 15, which says this, a ruler can be persuaded through patience and a gentle tongue can break a bone. A ruler can be persuaded through patience and a gentle tongue can break a bone. Notice that not by being controlling or manipulative or, or angry and demanding is a ruler persuaded, but with much patience and a gentle tongue. And, and that's hard for me because this goes totally against my nature. You know, I want to be in control. I don't like it when things don't go that way. And I want people, I just wish people would do as I wanted them to do. But when a brother or sister needs someone to be loving and honest enough to call them out on their sin, our first instinct should be to do it with patience and a gentle tongue. Now, this is still pretty countercultural where it's you know, popular to think that if you love somebody, then you'll never correct them, you know, just affirmation. But, but that's not really love. That is shallow, superficial self-love. 
you know, out of a desire really to protect ourselves and not risk possibly offending anybody else, we remain quiet while a friend who's gone astray needs correction. That's really self-love. Self-love is not love. It's selfish. Real love is selfless, sacrificial, and outward-focused. So we need to be gentle, yes, but we do also need to be honest enough to still tell the truth. And sometimes that truth really does feel like a slap in the face, as I'm sure it did for Peter. I remember during my first summer interning at Mile One Mission, my girlfriend Celeste was interning too, and she was super busy, not just with that, but it was September, and she was busy with school and, and other things, and I was worried that she was working too much, and if she would get all her hours in before exams and all of that. And so, you know, I decided I was going to be the one to stand up for her, because she's my girlfriend, so I marched down to Steve's office and gave my speech, listing all the things that Celeste was busy with, you know, repeating the same things over and over again. And, and she didn't want me to do this. She was pretty embarrassed by it. So after that, you know, I, I went back to work. And after a while, Steve came to me, Steve and Steve came to me and said, you know, your way of dealing with this today was completely wrong. And, and that was the truth. And, and we did the math and everything with the hours ended up working out just fine. And I got all soaky for no reason. And had Steve not come and called me out, I would have went to bed that night bitter. Bitter thinking of all the faults I could find. This is why this is wrong. This is why this thing is wrong. But when I was confronted, it actually restored my relationship and led me to repentance. That's what happened with Peter here too. Right? In 1 Peter Chapter 1, he says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in 2 Peter 1, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those are not the words of a man who believes in a two-tiered Christianity, but understands how the gospel of grace makes us all equal in Christ. And so Paul's rebuke here worked. He did it in love, and he told the truth. And the result was that Peter was made aware of his sin, and he repented along with the rest of them. And notice what Paul says here as well. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. He did it in front of the whole church. Right, not to embarrass Peter or make him feel even worse, but because Peter's sin was visible for the whole church to see. One author says that public sin requires public rebuke. Otherwise, the rest of the church wouldn't be clear what was right and what was really wrong. So Paul clarifies it for them here. Now, if we were to summarize all this, you know, now knowing that fear will cause us to deny the gospel, and whether for good or for evil, we have influence. What do we then do when the fear of people overcomes our love for God and we end up denying the gospel? Because let's face it, you know, we all have and are tempted to do so often. Well, the first, I'd first like to share this bit of encouragement from Martin Luther. He says this, Samson, David, 
and many other celebrated men who were full of the Holy Spirit fell into huge sins. Job and Jeremiah cursed the day of their birth. Elijah and Jonah grow tired of life and pray for death. Such errors and sins of the saints are set forth in order that those who are troubled and desperate may find comfort and that those who are proud may be afraid. No man has ever fallen so grievously that he could not have stood up again. On the other hand, no one has such a sure footing that he cannot fall. If Peter fell, I too may fall. If he stood up again, so can I. When I read that, I'm reminded of 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Right? I want to be holy. I want to serve Christ. I want to have victory over my sin. I'm tired of the same stuff all the time. You know, I know that I will sin, and that shouldn't be an excuse for it, but an acknowledgement of my own nature, so that when I do sin, I can run to Christ. Not sheepishly or, or beggarly, you know, as if awaiting a punishment, but clinging to the cross with all hope and confidence. You know, like Jacob wrestling with God, I will not let you go until you bless me. Knowing that our Savior is not only full of grace, mercy, and forgiveness, but who by revealing the depth of his love for us is able to overcome all our fear. Secondly, I'd like to give us something to hold on to when we are in the moment of temptation, to be ashamed of Christ out of fear. During this month, Many of us are reading through the book of Job, and as we were, all sort of talking through the chapters 1 and 2 at, uh, of Job at the office this week. Steve said something I never realized before. And you see, when we read Job and hear how all his children died, and all his wealth was taken away, and all his servants killed, and he's infected head to toe with boils, our immediate instinct is to go, poor Job. I hope that never happens to me because I don't know if I could ever endure that. And I don't know if I could ever endure that. But our first instinct is to see his calamity. And yet, what is Job's first instinct? What is Job's first instinct? To worship. To worship. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with any wrong. Why was he able to do that? How was he able to do that? And I don't want to give the wrong impression here. Job wasn't happy and like delighted. He sits in a heap of ashes, mourning the loss of his children as he ought to. But as much as he loved them, and as much as he was thankful for all that God had blessed him with, he had a greater love. A love that enabled him, even in suffering, even in mourning, to have joy. He had joy in God, his creator, and that was something that could never be taken away. Everything else can be taken away from us. 
but Christ and his love that will never be taken away. And so when you do feel the pressure mounting, when you do fear the loss of all that you stand to lose out of following Christ, be reminded that that list of things, you know, I mentioned much earlier on, popularity, approval, the job, promotions, friends, respect, etc., etc. Those things pale in comparison to the immense overwhelming joy of being in relationship with Jesus. And I, and I know some days it doesn't feel like that. Sometimes God feels small and people feel really big or, or things feel really big. And, and I, I think that for myself and, I, and I, I lament, why is it that these things don't pale in comparison to the love of Christ more often in my life? But, 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 but they should and they ought to and, and, and they do. Because Christ is so much better. And so I'll, I'll close with the words of Paul from Philippians chapter 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Let's pray. Father, I just come to you now in this place. And I pray, Lord, that you would comfort us. Because so often, God, in our lives, in my life, the fear of people, fear of consequences, really does overwhelm the love that I have for you. And it causes me to deny the gospel. It causes me to deny you. But I pray, Lord, that you would have mercy on us. You would forgive us. And I pray, God, that you would remind us of how much greater you are. Remind us, Lord, that, that the love that you have for us is so much greater than anything that we may stand to lose. All other things can be taken away, but, but you, Lord, are constantly with us and you never change. And so I pray that in whatever circumstances all of us are going through in our particular lives, that the joy of knowing you would overwhelm us. You know, whether we're going through a season of, of good or a season of struggle, that we would know what it means to have joy in you and for that joy to overwhelm all other things. So I ask all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.